Well, how many of you are scratching your head at this parable? Maybe you're familiar with it already uh, a little bit. I'm hoping, like I said, that I can be helpful in us making sense of it together. But first of all, I was thinking about this this week um, and the fact that on a few occasions in my life, I've heard people say something like this. They've said, well, it's just money. It's just money. And that was maybe in a moment of, of their uh, generosity or a moment of, you know, just kindness. What's well, just money? And the fact, if you think about it, and maybe you've said that. If you think about it, though, the fact that uh, anyone would even say that means that it's probably not just money. The fact that we would, we would want to, uh, to say that to bring some sense of comfort about it or uh, a change of mind about it. The problem, the, the problem is, is that it never is just money. And I think we get a, a sense of this today. Money is neutral, right? As currency, money is, it, it's just something we need. It's something we use. Uh, every culture has in some sense had currency. But the truth is, is that a relationship to money is not neutral. It's a matter of the heart, and it's something that Jesus is graciously speaking to today, pointedly speaking to um, in the gospel to us today. So I want you to think about it for a minute. Think about your own story, your own relationship to money, maybe your family, uh, maybe in your marriage, maybe as, as a, a single person who is you know, right now trying to find your way forward in career and all that. Think about your story. Think about your feelings about money. And the fact that we have these so often means that it's never just money. Let me tell you a little bit about our story. Um, Ashley and I, it's interesting how our stories intersected and at a very similar crossroad. We both came from families who, when we were in high school and early college, our families were involved in family businesses, both of which failed and led to crisis, and led to, uh, you know, just a lot of uncertainty and loss. And so we were trying to make sense of our lives together with this reality, and we both realized, because of what we experienced, that money is unpredictable. It can be. There were just assurances that we had were taken away, and so we were trying to find our way forward. And it's interesting how Ashley and I, with similar experiences, we actually responded differently. Now, Ashley's response was to, to, to see it as, you know, it's very finite. Money is very finite, so we want to scrimp, and we want to save, right, and, and worry. And she didn't want anything to do with our budget because it was so stressful. And then for me, though, having gone through the loss and all of that, there was a level of indifference in me. It's like, I don't want to worry about it. And, you know, if you have it, it's uncertain, so maybe you just want to spend it. And that's how, I mean, I wasn't sort of an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of guy. But the truth is that I, you know, once I got my work-study check in college and the weekend rolled around, I was really buying too many CDs and, honestly, cigarettes and um, tacos from Taco Bell. And let's be honest, some of you are more worried about the Taco Bell tacos than the cigarettes right now. Because I just, it's just the way we roll these days. I'm not going to lie to you, every once in a while, Wes Weitzel and I go and enjoy a delicious Taco Bell lunch, and we're not sorry about it. So this is where we were, and, and um, 
you know, hurt, fear, worry, me, it was just like, you know, you can't trust money, and you just, if you have it, enjoy it, and, you know, so we're trying to assimilate these, you know, or, or synthesize these two experiences, and our first fight was about money, which, you know, I, I call it a fight, but it was a disagreement, and most of those came as a result of my insensitivity, and I said something that I, I shouldn't, or the way that I should, uh, you know, should not have said it, but our first fight was about store brand Pop-Tarts. And it was because, again, she was like trying to save us money and scrimp and all of that, and she was concerned. And we didn't, we had pretty good jobs, but not great jobs, and we had lean times, and we lived check to check. So she bought store brand Pop Tarts, and I was not happy about it <laughs> at all. There's some store brand things that you can do. Um, you can buy, you know, at least in my opinion then, but, but Pop Tarts are not. Uh, the kind of thing. And I, if those of you who are judging me about tacos, you might be judging me about Pop-Tarts right now, but I'm not sorry about it. Pop-Tarts are delicious. So we, we brought this, this life together, you know, our experience together uh, with regard to money, and it was, it was difficult because money, it's, not, it's never just money. It was a, a story. It was a feeling. And probably, I mean, how are you feeling right, right now when we're talking about money in church? It's proving the point to some degree. We, you know, we, it's hard to talk about and to face. And it's something that Jesus talks about, as I've said, 20 times more than anything else. It matters. As I said, money is morally neutral, but it's powerful because of its role in our lives and even in our own hearts. Let me tell you what I mean by it's, it's morally neutral. In other words, the, people have thought that the scriptures teach that oh, well, those who pursue per poverty, they're somehow more holy. And that's not the truth. Or those that have wealth, you know, especially in Jesus' day, they believe, well, they're being blessed because they're, morally they're just more superior. And so they, God must love them more. Um, and also those who have riches aren't. You know, we, we don't find from Scripture that just because you have wealth and riches that you're, you're somehow more evil or more corrupt. That's not what's being said either. But the message is one of, of stewardship and understanding regardless of our stories and how we feel. And the fact is, what Jesus is on about in this, this um, parable is the fact that we are all stewards and managers. And he makes these really odd contrasts, a comparison and contrast that are important for us to locate ourselves when it comes to our heart condition and to our hand condition when it comes to money. So, money's necessary, but we know this. It has been the fundamental reason that civilizations have fallen into corruption or have fallen into coercion or, and into subjugation, the pursuit of money and of wealth and of glory based on it and of gold and every possible uh, resource that you can imagine, material resource, has been cause for fighting and for death and for just sheer awfulness throughout the annals of history. It's never just money. So let's consider this dark parable a little bit that Jesus tells. And I say it's dark because it's, it is heavy, and, it, and trying to make this comparison is complicated. I would, con I would say that this dark parable and the summary that Jesus offers is kind of like a DTR for us, a define the relationship to money talk that he's having with us right here, and for his people, against the contrast of how the world thinks about, or the, the sons of the world, he said, think about money. In other words, comparing one economy to another. And I'll talk about that in just a minute.
It's strange. It gets stranger in verse 9, right, when we see that here is this master who is, he's, or verse 8, he's commending the dishonest manager. And then Jesus says, I tell you, you know, they're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What, what should we be learning from them? That sounds kind of awful and corrupt. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So it's really enigmatic, strange, this comparison and contrast. So I want to unpack this a little bit. And before I do, though, verse 13, we need to think about this a little bit before we walk through this parable. Because Jesus uses a really, really important word in verse 13 when he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Mammona. Mammonas, really, is, it's an Aramaic word that Luke chooses to leave in. He could have used uh, some other words, Greek words, for, uh, for wealth or for money, but mammonas is an Aramaic word that talks about the personification of of greed, the power of money, the system, the systemic reality, the controlling reality of money, even potentially as an idol. So Jesus sums up this story by saying we find ourselves in relationship to money in one of two ways, part of one of two economies. So it has the power to rule us is really what he's saying. So what's the way out? And I'm kind of working backwards. What's the way out? Jesus is saying you belong to a different economy than that one, than the story he's telling. It works differently for sons and daughters of life, uh, of light. It's complex. It's layered. And, you know, it, it, if you read this and you've ever read this and it's caused you to scratch your head, you're not alone. In fact, in the fourth century, there was a, a guy who's remembered now as Julian the Apostate. Can you imagine if throughout history in 16th century, 17th centuries later, you're remembered as Julian the Apostate? Well, he was a believer who read scriptures like this and he said, oh, wait a minute. The Lord is teaching his people to be liars and thieves and to be corrupt. He said, this is a corrupting influence on Roman culture. So he interpreted this parable. It was so problematic for him, interpreted as a reason why you would not want Christianity to be a corrupting influence in the culture. It's, a, it's an enigmatic parable. So Jesus, what's he doing? He's creating a, a, a contrast in comparison for us to take very seriously. And I'll talk about those, the comparison in just a minute, but let's walk through it. There are three initial players here. Beginning in verse 1, right, there was a rich man. He had a manager, and charges were brought to him. So in other words, there's this, there are these accusing voices that are there. And they have much to say about this, the mismanagement of this, uh, of this steward, of this oikonomos, who's supposed to be taking care of the estate. This is an extremely wealthy person. And so we find out he has people who are indebted to him basically using his land and growing crops, and they're supposed to pay him some things. They're supposed to pay him a yield from what they get. So let me just read verse 2. It says, And he called him and said to him, this to the manager, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he's fired on the spot. Except that he's got to go and get the books and bring them back, right? Um, he's got to account for his mismanagement. So he's got a little gap right in here. 
And so he realized with this gap, we get what we call a little soliloquy, right? He's talking to himself a little bit. It's a private moment that we get to hear his plan and his self-talk. And he said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, which presumably he's probably older. Um, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's not blind. He's not crippled. So he can't, in the culture, they're not going to accept that this man who's lost this job is just going to go out and beg. It's, it, it's not something for him to do. So he's trying to figure out, how do I work this? He has this little time to retrieve the books. And what he can do, uh, to, he can do is he can parade as a representative of the master at this point. He can parade as one who has the power. He can leverage some power, and he can begin to do a little work for himself. He can continue to work illegally and deceptively for his own benefit. So let me just read verses 4 through 7. What does he do? He says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And this isn't just so that he can go couch surfing around because people will accept him. This is the possibility that he might find another job with those people doing what he's doing presently. He might, um, you know, give himself another opportunity. So he, he says, I've decided what to do. Um, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he has these private meetings, Right? He summons them one by one, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Now note that he's getting them to write in the books, right? Write 50. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. Now, this is big farming business because that many measures of oil would have been about 150 olive trees. This is like 500 denarii, which was like a year and a half of yield. Big money, big farming business. 100 measures of wheat was essentially equivalent to 100 acres of wheat. Big farming business. And so he's cutting off even potentially what would have been the interest on top of it. As if they're not paying it yet, they're gaining interest. So this whole, they're, they're a part of a larger system, an economic system that's going on here. And actually what we find out from this is this, the, the estate manager should not have been, at least if he was a, a faithful Jew, should not have been charging interest that, that could have been cut off of it. Um, so then we find out that this manager, obviously, he's already been cooking the books, and now he starts cooking them more. And he invites others to collude. He invites others to come in and, and to write down what they've got so that the master sees in their own hand that they change it. This is what I owe. So he's, he's leveraging this connection that he has with them. He's leveraging what he has to schmooze. How many of you heard the word schmoozer? Have you ever, you ever used the word schmoozer? Right? It's a Yiddish word. There's another word related to it called mocker. A schmoozer is somebody who's working their relationships, using their social capital for their own benefit. A mocker is somebody who's using social capital and is, um, is a part of organizations or political action or other things to make it better for everyone else. But a schmoozer is somebody who actually is just, again, they're focused on themselves. So this guy, is, he's a schmoozer. He's working it for his own benefit. He wants to make himself popular and make himself hireable. And he's inviting them basically into a larger embezzlement scheme. A corrupt system, corrupt economy. 
He makes them complicit. They write in their, their own hand in the books, and then what does he do? He turns it in. Checkmate. He's got this, the, the owner of the estate, what's he going to do? He's already done this. He's already even been a representative in some sense to these, uh, you know, the other folks who are renting his land and who have these debts. And so now is he going to go back and say, no, 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 he was wrong. Instead, the owner uh, of the estate, he actually looks good in their eyes. He's gotten some social capital. He's, he's benefiting from this situation now, and he can't undo it. And so what does he actually do here? He commends him because he's like, you worked it. This is how it works. You leveraged it. He actually sees the shrewdness with which he operates for his own benefit. And actually, some of that benefit has come back to the manager or to the, to the rich man. It's kind of checkmate at this point. And there's a recognition. That's how we work. That's how this economy works. That system works. So the comparison and the contrast, maybe by this point is becoming clear to you, but Jesus is not saying that we need to be shrewd and need to kind of just be working what we have so that we have friends and we have social capital and it works to our benefit. In fact, he's standing these two ways, even two ways of living in a generation he talks about, these two worlds, these two economies in contrast to one another. We're also meant to see that because it's stewardship, it's management, we're also meant to see two um, masters coming into view. And interestingly, in the case of the, the story of the parable, that master is pretty merciful, isn't he? Have you thought about that? It's like he could have and should have thrown this guy in jail. He actually wants to be known as generous. And the interesting thing is, is that the manager sees this master as somebody who he can push all the boundaries all the way out for his own benefit. He is relying on the mercy of the master. And he is, you know, in this case, even in a commendable way when he's, you know, working the system, he's representing him. But there's a contrast there between the, both the, the corruption that exists in that system and ultimately Jesus is saying, you're sons and daughters of light. It's different for us. And then the third comparison, the contrast, two sets of beneficiaries. Who benefits ultimately in this, uh, in, in the story that Jesus is telling? Now, you know, you, the, the benefit of those who are the tenants or the renters, the debtors, they benefit to some degree. Now they've made friends. And then, of course, the manager, he benefits. And then the... Um, the master, he's going to benefit as well. But what Jesus is ultimately calling his disciples to do is to think about how they're making friends with what they've been given. It's the contrast of these economies. Those in need. In the New Testament, we see this over and over. That the, the resources that we have, the divine economy to which we belong, are, are concerned with our neighbor. They're concerned with the need that's around us. Not just individual, but beyond. They're concerned with blessing. They're concerned with the advancement of the good news. That people cannot be reduced to their economic circumstances, which is very often what our world does. When you see the developing world clamoring continually for the kind of riches that we say are most important to dignify and humanize you, when we know they're not. 
The contrast is so vitally important. The call, so the, this, the hinge here, the call to shrewdness is actually a call to a keen awareness of how our economy works. How we as managers and stewards work with relationship to the master and the resources that he has entrusted to us. Does that make sense? Jesus has gotten their attention, created this powerful contrast, and now we're meant to, to, to draw from it a keen aware, awareness of how our economy works and actually who our master is, the great blessing that he wants, the great friendship that he wants with us and through us, with those in need. He's calling us to faithful stewardship and responsible dealings. And here's the most important thing. Get this. The stewardship of the estate the riches, the wealth, the blessings, the everything that God gives us, as we use them, as we are called to be stewards, are a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the order and the economy that awaits. Complete justice. We get to look at a very unjust system that's being worked by corrupt people. And yet, what Jesus is presenting is a picture of justice that we begin, can begin to live now with our resources that come through an expression of the great generosity and love and superabundance of our God. In verse 13, he says, and this sort of sums it up, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammonas and money. It's a power at work through personal and systemic relationship um, to money. And, the, and it's the role of money that puts us very often in servitude. It puts our economies, it puts our governments, it puts our world in servitude. And Jesus is bringing to the service that this is how this type of corruption comes about because there is a power at work. And he is wanting them to be shrewd about the power of money at work. He wants us to be shrewd about the reality of what money can even do in our own hearts and our riches, and our success can do. I was reading a book by Andy Crouch called The Life We're Looking For. It's a really good book, and he has a chapter on mammon, and, and it's sort of role in our... The, the book is about recovering relationship in a technolo te technological world that's sort of pulling us apart. And he says this, he says, Mammon's most seductive promise is abundance without dependence. Think about that. The idea that we can have more and more and more, but not really be related to where it's coming from, whose it is, and what our stewardship of it really means. So in other words, it's, it's the seduction of ownership without stewardship, without a sense that we're managing it. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples, to us, is our shrewdness is a recognition of who our master is, of what his resources mean, what they're meant to do through us. And it all comes out of this fundamentally, friends. Jesus is committed to our freedom. He is committed to our flourishing. And being in servitude emotionally, economically, otherwise, to money, and the power that lives within it that Jesus is drawing out right here, this is not God's best for us. And it hits us in a lot of different ways, whether it's through scarcity and fear or whether it's through greed and materialism. This is not God's best for us. And we all know how it's affecting and working in us right now. We need to ask ourselves, how does it make us feel? 
Jesus' commitment is to our freedom and flourishing. And here's, I think, an an important little connection. I'll close with this. Jesus is committed to the cancellation of our debts. And not for his own benefit, but for the glory of the Father and for our good. Jesus is the ultimate oikonomos, the servant who did what? He even said to us, I no longer call you servants. In John 15, he said, I call you friends. This is the Jesus who, in Philippians 2, emptied himself even of of the power of deity to become a servant for us that he might make us sons and daughters of God, of light. He emptied himself of those riches that we might be made rich. And so he's inviting us into the ongoing ministry. Here's what we have, folks. We have what God has given us that can cause all sorts of fear. It can cause all sorts of... um, Character issues, it can cause us all sorts of relationship problems. And actually, it can just mislocate where our trust and our confidence lies. And I know many of you have felt and are feeling it, and even in the economy we live right now. But look at our world. Our world is, we're finding out that the economies that we even do our best to make are still very often corrupted and affected by the reality of mammon. And we get the opportunity as sons and daughters of light. We get this opportunity to be a signpost to the great, the good, the beautiful reality of flourishing that God has in store. To begin even right now to see what we have as gifts from God to steward toward a certain end that is to come. That is God's abundance for all. Right now we are the ones who get this opportunity to live in a different economy, the divine economy, to be a deep encouragement to the world so that when we give, when we bless, when we don't live in fear with regard to it, when we don't live under the power and the servitude and in servitude to mammon, we get to actually say what humanity is made for. God's ultimate good for us. This is, Jesus is getting at nothing less than that. There's a freedom and there is the, the true purpose that we are made for with regard to something so powerful that he is restoring unto us and calling us to that. This is the good news. Now, I know some of you probably even today, you're feeling it. No doubt, just based on the odds, some of you are feeling real disruption, probably real fear, real worry. Or maybe you've had a windfall and you're wondering, how do, how do I manage this? What's God's best for me in this? And I believe right here we find out that God wants for us abundance. And he wants dependence. Because that's how our relational toil and pain that comes along with money and scarcity and all of these things is met with God's best for us. Dependence upon him, the relationship restored in and through him. Do you believe it?